This is How Music Does That. I'm Dale McGowan. There once was a ship that put to sea the name of the ship. Oh, no. No, no, no. I know you want your shanties. Sea shanties are all over the zeitgeist right now, and I've had more requests for an episode about sea shanties than any other topic since the beginning of this podcast. So we'll get to the shanties, but that's not where we start. This is. Three girls are milling grain in a little village near Baro, Guinea in West Africa. The grain is in a big mortar on the ground, a deep bowl, and they're pounding it with these long, rounded wooden shafts, taller than they are. What you hear is the three pestles, the three shafts, rhythmically impacting the grain in the bowl, gradually milling it into flour. What you hear is the music of work. Now, around the corner, half a dozen women sit in a semicircle, tossing long, thin, fresh loaves of bread between their hands as they cool, rhythmically, shaping them to a beat and singing. Now that's an orange-hot tool blade right out of the fire. There are three men encircling it as it's held to the floor by a fourth, all three pummeling it flat and sharp with long-handled hammers in tempo. So why is that? Why the tempo? Why the regular pulse? Well, think of the alternatives. First of all, one guy hammering by himself would take three times as long. So you get three hammersmiths working together. That makes sense. But if they're all swinging in their own tempos, their hammers would constantly collide as they approach the tool blade. So you set up a tempo and keep it. And the work itself makes a kind of music. Those three girls milling the grain, same idea. The bowl isn't that wide, so a steady tempo keeps them fast and also prevents collisions. They aren't just entertaining themselves by setting up a rhythm. It's practical, but it's also musical. I wouldn't be surprised if even the bread-cooling women were using the music in a practical way. The rhythm keeps the shaping movements even, right? And maybe it takes, what, nine verses for the loaves to cool or something like that. This is a Malinka village. The Malinka are an ethnic group of about 11 million people, stretches in this huge arc from the mouth of the Gambia River in the northwest to Cote d'Ivoire in the southeast crosses through eight countries with many other ethnic groups with other languages and cultures. But one thing that's pretty common throughout West Africa is this integration of music and work. Any guesses what you're hearing right now? That is the sound of postal workers in Ghana, standing at a counter, pulling a long, straight pile of mail toward them and hand-canceling all the stamps. There's an intrinsic rhythm to the work. The stamp provides the rhythm, and they're just adding this whistled melody. But like the women with the bread, they're not just whistling while they work. The work itself has a part in generating the music. 
There's a Malinka expression for this. It says, there is no movement without rhythm. You can't help generating music just by living. They call it Foley, the rhythm of living. Le pas de marche, c'est le rythme. Every step we take is rhythm. Le parole, Every word we speak is rhythm. C'est le rythme. When the people of West Africa were enslaved and brought to the Americas, they brought this concept of Foley with them, integrating music into work. A sailor visiting Martinique in the Caribbean in 1806 wrote in his diary that, quote, the Negroes have a different air, that's another word for tune, and words for every kind of labor. Sometimes they sing, and their motions, even while cultivating the ground, keep time to the music. This practice finds its way into the work songs and field hollers of enslaved people in the U.S., and later in the call and response of black chain gangs in prison labor camps in the South. A leader calls to set the work tempo, and the rest give the response. Same thing for black riverboat rowers and corn shuckers and laborers loading wood into steamboat stokers and longshoring and cotton screwing all through the 18th and 19th centuries and into the 20th. Whenever the work involved rhythmic repetition and the workers were primarily of African origin, more often than not, music was a part of it. Now, this practice of using music to coordinate work shows up even now. Think about vocal marching cadences or running cadences in the military. Get your hands out of your shorts. Sergeant says it gives you work. Clean your rifles clean of sand. Graduation gave sound of One, two, sound of Three, sound of One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. It serves the same purpose of coordinating a large group of people, right? The film theorist Jean Mitri said... Music provides an ordered articulation of time. He was explaining how beat and rhythm and other structures of music provide these landmarks and guardrails in time for the visual drama. Even if the visual is jumping between scenes or perspectives or going back in time or inside someone's head, the continuity of scoring can keep you oriented. It's simpler in the case of soldiers marching, but the idea is the same. Music provides an ordered articulation of time to keep you oriented and coordinated. So then, vocal marching cadences to coordinate soldiers led to shanties to coordinate sailors, right? Uh, No. That kind of sung marching cadence is much more recent than the shanty, more recent by centuries. And when you think of shanties, you shouldn't mostly think of Navy sailors anyway. The British Royal Navy even banned singing while working in the 19th century, because it was thought to interfere with hearing shouted orders, which it probably would. Shanties were mostly sung by civilians, merchant sailors, whalers, pirates, I don't know. They are connected to military cadences, but not in the way you might think. One, two, three, four! But what's the connection between sea shanties and West Africa? I mean, what could be further from enslaved Africans in the fields of America then a ship full of English sailors singing Soon May the Wellerman Come. There once was a ship that put to sea The name of the ship was a bully of tea The winds blew up her bow Up down below my bully boys blow <gasps> Well, first of all, 
tangent, the Wellerman was actually not a British shanty, technically. It was written and sung by whalers in New Zealand about the supply ships of the Weller brothers, who established a whaling station in the South Island of New Zealand and sailed provisions like sugar and tea and rum out to whaling ships as they hunted and beached and tongued their prey. One day when the tonguing is done. Tonguing, by the way, is the process of stripping the blubber off of whales in what looks like huge tongues and then cutting it up and melting it to extract the whale oil for lamps. Nasty job, apparently. And they very much looked forward to the arrival of the Weller Brothers' provision ships manned by sailors they called the Wellermen. Soon may the Wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. Herman Melville was actually employed for a time on one of the Weller's supply ships, so the author of Moby Dick was briefly a Wellerman. So yeah, that, that one was not exactly British. And uh, in fact, it isn't even really, probably, technically, a sea shanty. <gasps> it's, it's a whaling song. A shanty is a very specific thing. The Wellerman is this long story, a mini Moby Dick, six full verses telling the tale of a never-ending battle between a right whale and the indefatigable harpoonmen of the Billy O'Tee alternating with six of those Wellerman refrains. That's a complex little ditty, which means it wasn't really a shanty. Shanties are simple. They're repetitive songs intended to coordinate the work of a number of sailors. Spinning out an epic tale with a mouthful of lyrics like that just wouldn't serve the purpose. What will we do with a drunken sailor? What will we do with a drunken sailor? What will we do with a drunken sailor early in the morning? Now that's a sea shanty. Drunken Sailor actually goes way back. The first mention is in 1839 in somebody's diary on a long whaling voyage from Connecticut to the Pacific. Yeah, long voyage. The writer described a few lines of the song and said it was, quote, performed with very good effect when there is a long line of men hauling together. Coordination, right? Practical. Their motions keep time to the music. There were a bunch of types of shanties for different kinds of work. Short-haul shanties, for work that required short, quick pulls, like unfurling or shortening a sail. Get that steady rhythm to get the job done in rough seas. Long-haul shanties for heavy work over a longer period of time, like raising or lowering a heavy sail. Usually a slower tempo, strong beats for the poles, with a chorus at the end of each line. Where boys become greenhorns and greens become mates. To be away below the man down. And if you ain't into fishing, hell, you're in the wrong place. Give me some time to blow the man down. Capstan shanties were specifically for raising the anchor using a capstan, that winch that looks like a turnstile on the deck of a sailing ship. Can you picture that? You get a sailor on each arm of the capstan or a few sailors on each arm and walk around it to wind the chain and raise the anchor. It helps to have everybody walking in sync so it turns smoothly instead of each sailor pushing herky-jerky on each arm at different times and speeds. So there's this whole catalog of capstan shanties, including... What will we do with a drunken sailor? What will we do with a drunken sailor? 
There were pumping shanties for pumping the bilge dry, this really exhausting work below decks. Santiano, game the day away, Santiano. Wailing songs, those are different. Those are the whalers writing themselves into these epic tales. They would have been sung after the work was done to raise their spirits. So, okay, but where did the idea come from to use music to coordinate work? It had to start somewhere. Where in the world could we look for the source of the notion that music could help to coordinate work? What, West Africa? No. What does Africa have to do with whaling ships? Well, kind of a lot, actually. Gib Schreffler, an ethnomusicologist at Pomona College, says that simple counting chants existed on British and French ships in the 18th and 19th centuries, but several distinctive features of actual shanties, these verse-form work songs, quote, appear to owe much to African-American work songs. There were black sailors aboard European merchant ships and fishing and whaling ships recruited from the Caribbean and from ports in West Africa. Several European observers in the early 1800s described black sailors specifically as the ones who would sing as they worked. White European and American culture was not known for this kind of work song at the time at all. You even start to get this kind of cliche that black laborers, quote, can't work without singing. The British novelist Frank Thomas Bullen wrote that those of African descent were, quote, a most tuneful race if ever there was one, men, moreover, who seemed unable to pick up a rope yarn without a song. That's overdoing it, of course, but the connection between work and music was clearest among workers of African descent. And by the 1830s, the simple counting chants of white European sailors had been supplanted by what Schreffler calls a comprehensive system of developed work songs contributed by the direct involvement of African Americans. So sea shanties trace their roots all the way to Foley. Postscript. What about those military vocal cadences I mentioned? I said those are connected to shanties, but not by the military. So what's the connection? I'll let this 1944 U.S. Army V-Disc recording tell it. On a cold spring evening in May 1944, as the Provisional Training Center was returning from a long, tedious march through swamps and rough country, a chant broke the stillness of the night. Upon investigation, it was found that a Negro soldier by the name of Willie Duckworth, on detached service with the Provisional Training Center, Fort Slocum, was chanting to build up the spirits of his weary comrades. It was not long before the infectious rhythm was spreading through the ranks. Foot-weary soldiers started to pack up their step in cadence with a growing chorus of hearty male voices. Instead of a downtrodden, fatigued company, here marched 200 soldiers with heads up, a spring to their step, and happy smiles on their faces. This transformation occurred with the beginning of the Duckworth chant. Upon returning to Fort Slocum, Private Duckworth, with the aid of the Provisional Training Center instructors, composed a series of verses and choruses to be used with a marching cadence. Since that eventful evening, the Duckworth chant has been made a part of the drill at Fort Slocum, as it has proved to be not only a tremendous morale factor while marching, but also coordinated the movements of close order drill with troop precision. 
Hut, hook, hip, hook, the heads are up, the chests are out, the horns are swinging and canes count. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. Here's count. One, two, three, four. One, two. Three, four. Eeny, more. Let's go back and count some more. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. Here's count. One, two, three, four. One, two. Three, four. We will march to beat the band and we'll never fight the that was episode 59 of How Music Does That. Many thanks to Christopher Landwehr, my most recent subscriber on Patreon. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for How Music Does That. You make me-